Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Welcome back to the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio. I'm your moderator, Joe Brand. As always, we're joined by our two co-hosts, Tina Martini of McDermott, Will & Emery, and Rich Lenkoff of Downey & Lenkoff. There is some serious thought that Alec Baldwin could be found guilty of criminal negligence. We bring in Nima Ramini, a prestigious California personal injury attorney. He's the president and co-founder of West Coast Trial Lawyers. And he graduated from UCLA at the age of 19 in Harvard Law School at 22. He's a reoccurring guest here on the Legal Faceoff podcast. Nima, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, as always. So, Nima, news just broke that Alec Baldwin and armorer Hannah Gutierrez-Reed faced criminal charges for the accidental shooting death of Helena Hutchins on the set of the movie Rust back in October of 2021. Looks like both are going to be facing involuntary manslaughter charges uh, with allegations of uh, criminal negligence. Up until now, the focus has been on civil charges in this case, with speculation that criminal charges would follow. Tell us more about these latest charges. Well, I'm surprised at the charges, frankly, not that they're happening because the Santa Fe DA went to the New Mexico legislature to get funding for another prosecutor and for a media person, obviously, you're not going to request that funding unless you're going to prosecute Baldwin. But I am surprised at the firearms enhancement, that five-year mandatory minimum, and the sweetheart deal given to Assistant Director Dave Halls. You know, do you think, I mean, it sounds like part of the deal, we'll see Halls testify against Baldwin and uh, Gutierrez Reed. What do you expect him to add to the prosecution's case? I think he's going to get torn up on cross-examination. When you're a prosecutor, when I prosecuted cases, you don't give those types of deals, period. And if you do, you do it after trial, after your cooperating witness has testified and testified truthfully. Now you've given him a no-time misdemeanor, six months probation, where you're charging you know, the other two with you know, mandatory minimums in state prison. So guess what? He's going to be fodder for cross-examination, and he's going to get beat up pretty bad by Baldwin's attorneys at Quinn Emanuel. You know, let's talk about the um, charges here. So there's an element of violation of a duty of care against Alec Baldwin as both the uh, gun handler and allegedly the person who pulled the trigger, although that's much in dispute, right? He says that never happened. He told that to Stephanopoulos. Uh, the, uh, the, the prosecutor uh, said that the FBI report unequivocally says that he did. So that'll be interesting. But also in his role as a producer on a film that was, according to the prosecution's case, ridden with uh, errors and flaws and, and was basically a mess. Also, there's a uh, theory against the ar uh, armor of a neighbor principal. What does all this mean? Break that down for us. Yeah, I mean, there's so much going on. I think with, with respect to Baldwin individually, you have the obviously the dispute as, as to whether he pulled the trigger. I think there's some other bases for liability, potentially. Santa Fe DA seems to think that 
he had an independent duty to inspect the gun. And then, of course, there's the argument that you should never point a firearm at another human being, even if you believe it's a cold gun and it's not loaded. And Baldwin did admit during that Stephanopoulos interview to cocking back the hammer. That could also be a basis for individual negligence. And of course, as a producer, it's been widely reported that there were live rounds on set. There was target practice and that this gun, or at least a firearm, had reportedly misfired on set, not just once, but twice. So I think any of these facts or a combination of them could be the basis for criminal negligence here. So what do you think about the inconsistencies here? We, uh, Rich touched on it, um, you know, especially with respect to whether he pulled the trigger or not. Forensic evidence indicates that he did pull the trigger. Gutierrez Reed testified that he had poor form holding the gun, needed more training. She didn't have time to give it to him. How do you think all of this is going to play out for Alec Baldwin, who many have said was really just trying to get public sympathy when he was doing the interview circuit, especially early on? Well, this is why we lawyers cringe when our clients give interviews, right? I mean, we always advise them not to do so. Look, I mean, I'm a former federal prosecutor. I'm going to believe the FBI ballistics report, right? It's one of the best crime labs in the world. But, you know, you know, Baldwin is an actor. He cares about his career. He's got his PR folks in his ear. So I'm sure that interview was done for public relations reasons and not legal ones, because, of course, we all know any law student knows that those statements can be only used against you. It certainly can't help you in any criminal case. Nima, Helena Hutchins, the, the victim here uh, in this shooting, her husband, it's an interesting you know, situation, especially given uh, how this will, you mentioned the jury, how a jury will react. You know, her husband sued the production and he uh, he settled. Right. And part of that settlement uh, meant that he was a producer now on Rust, which was until these charges were brought, was rumored to be, uh, you know, restarting and possibly may still happen. So he settles that case, the civil case, and he's made a producer to the film. He's invested in, in, in some ways in the success of the film. In the wake of uh, the news release and now these charges, he's come out and said, I'm glad that these people were charged criminally, and I hope justice is to be served. Um, in the civil case, he made a statement saying, I'm glad this is over and no one is at fault for this accident. How do you think a jury is going to look at those two competing statements from this victim, admittedly a terrible situation that he's a widow, and reconcile those two seemingly um, disproportionate responses from the from the widow? Well, Matt, the widow were, I should say, I apologize, the widow were. Well, Matt Hutchins is a lawyer, you know, transactional lawyer, Latham and Watkins. So he's very sophisticated. You know, here's how I reconcile them, because the statement that came after the charges wasn't by Matt Hutchins. It was by Brian Panish, his personal injury attorney here in L.A. So, you know, we know that Matt Hutchins is going to be a witness. And if I'm the defense, I point to his statement immediately after the settlement. He said it was an accident. The victim himself believes that it was an accident. So. You know, his lawyer is not going to be testifying. So if I'm the defense here, I call Dave Halls as witness one and Matt Hutchins as witness two. Those are great defense witnesses, in my opinion. You move. So, Nima, yeah, go ahead, Tina. Huh? No, no, go ahead. Okay. So, Nima, you know, obviously with criminal charges at play here, incarceration is definitely a possibility for, for Baldwin. If he ends up in jail, has justice really been served? I mean, the criminal justice system is designed for things like deterrence. I don't think that Alec Baldwin is at risk of ever doing anything like this again, regardless of whether he ends up in jail or not. What are your thoughts on this? 
I think the DA overcharged the case. This is not a five-year state prison case. Those charges are appropriate if someone's playing Russian roulette. You know, I would have understood if you know the three defendants, you know, at least Halls and Baldwin were charged with the first manslaughter count, that class D felony in New Mexico that carries up to an 18-month sentence in prison. That might be appropriate. But you can't charge arguably the least culpable person, Baldwin, with a five-year mandatory minimum. Give someone who's potentially more culpable, you know, Dave Hall's no time, a misdemeanor. When he made that representation, doesn't make any sense. Uh, really, you're talking about some significant disparities in sentencing and really kind of head-scratcher in terms of how the DA has handled this case. And not only that, you're waiting 15 months. This investigation was concluded a long time ago. I know she was waiting for Baldwin's cell phone. But does it make sense to sit on this case as long as she did? And then last question, Ernie, to that point, right? Um, you know, the other confounding thing among the very many confusing things, in my opinion, is that if I'm on the jury, listen, you're a trial lawyer. All you need to do as the defense is raise a small degree of reasonable doubt in one individual, right? So if I'm on that jury and I hear that you charged Alec Baldwin, at least partially as a producer, Right. Everyone knows, even a layperson knows that Alec Baldwin is not ordering, you know, the catering. He's not like cutting film in the back. He's a name. Maybe he had some degree of uh, control, but there are much bigger producers on the film. None of them were charged. Right. That to me is a big question mark. The second big question mark, if I'm sitting in that box is what about this? How did this live ammo get on on the set? Right. The D.A. said that first day, that's a red herring. It doesn't really matter. It's irrelevant. Well, as a juror, I would think, well, that does seem relevant. They haven't answered this question in 15 months. There must be some you know, mystery there or some question. To me, that's like a huge piece of reasonable doubt in and of itself. Rich, I agree with you. I mean, like they got to get 12 out of 12. We know that jurors, they love celebrities, right? And if you're looking at culpability, this isn't a civil case. We're not talking about vicarious liability where he's the employer and he's going to be responsible for the actions of others. He needs to be individually liable. So- I think the DA is going to have an uphill battle. Um, now that she's overcharged the case, there's no real possible deal. She can't backtrack and you know offer some sort of plea agreement when you've charged something like this. Baldwin's going to dig in his heels. He has high-priced lawyers. I think he's got a great defense, both on the individual actions as well as the producer actions, like you said. So this is the type of case that I could see going to trial and Baldwin either getting acquitted outright or getting a hung jury. Nima, just before Joe said, you I just had a question. How many times were you called Doogie Hauser in your academic career? <laughs> many <laughs> times. Yeah. The, the legal Doogie Hauser. I get that a lot. Well, again, Joe, Joe, we'll explain that reference later. <laughs> I, I, I know. I know Neil Patrick Harris, his first role. Don't don't get me wrong. That is the Doogie Hauser of lawyers is Nima Romani, a president and co-founder of West Coast Trial Lawyers. Nima, thank you so much again for the time. Of course. Thanks for having me. Glad to be back. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Downey and Lenkoff, a firm with offices in Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like McDonald's, Target, Macy's, Wendy's, and the Chicago Bears for his zealous advocacy and outstanding litigation results. Rich's many accolades include being named as an Illinois super lawyer from 2015 to present and leading lawyer from 2012 to present. These are designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, serving on the Legal Prep Charter Academy Advisory Board and the Northern Illinois University College of Law Board of Visitors. 
Rich is also a producer with credits including 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and Mike Ditka. Renegades, a Caesars Palace production starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon, Rock of Ages, and Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel in Concert. In addition to hosting WGN's Legal Faceoff since 2014, Rich serves as a legal analyst for a variety of media outlets. Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Downey and & Lenkoff, please visit dl-firm.com. Welcome back to the Legal Face-Off podcast. Let's talk classified documents. And we bring in Scott Amy, General Counsel of POGO, Project on Government Oversight. Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So, Scott, over the past six months, many documents that have been marked classified have been found in a number of inappropriate locations, including at Mar-a-Lago, in President Biden's garage and at his Wilmington residence, and at former Vice President Pence's Indiana home. Why does there seem to be a rash of these discoveries at the highest levels of the executive branch? That's a great question. Um, and uh, there are probably a lot of listeners that will handle classified documents and say, boy, I'd never be able to leave a facility or you know, my employer and w- walk out with classified documents. Uh, the, the, the question ends up being is why, why aren't those same procedures and protections applied at a higher levels? And what we're seeing here is that it's a lot easier to pack your bags almost like a college student when you're moving out of a dorm and just throw things together for people inside of the White House, including the president and the vice president, where you have people packing up boxes, not doing the proper review of them and walking out with them than it is for people that handle classified information every day inside of a government facility or even a company facility. So, Scott, clearly uh, these individuals, these three we're talking about, have not really handled this the right way. It seems to be a bipartisan problem. Going forward, what should be the proper way to handle it? I know, for example, that you know you should have skiffs, right, in reviewing these these uh, the, these documents. Um, that's one solution, possibly. But really, what are the guidelines that the government should put in place, and more importantly, you know, be followed by these individuals going forward? Well, I think there's a few. Um, obviously, you know, I, I have a feeling the White House operates as its own skiff, and so. They actually probably thought, oh, there's so much classified material that's coming into this building. And at that point, you know, it's probably it's everywhere. And that's how it just got thrown into boxes and was able to walk out. There's computers. There's hard copies of all these things. Um, I think as we're switching administrations, I think there has to be a better review of what got placed into boxes. And ISU, the uh, Information Security Oversight Office and NARA have to be present at the time that those boxes are being packed or at least before they're thrown on a truck to do a classification review. And there has to be some kind of assessment done. But also, if you go back, you know, 50 years, there's always been problems with overclassification, how it's proliferated. It's only gotten worse. The costs of cl- the classification process, the overclassification of documents, how there, if there's one fact in it that's classified, that has to, in another document, that has to be classified in this document. So I do think that this is the perfect time for Congress to systemically look at the classification process and specifically the declassification process and make improvements there. So, Scott, um, to your point, 
you know, there's issues with things being overclassified as well as how documents that are classified are being handled. We've seen President Biden and former Vice President Pence seemingly at least somewhat cooperative with respect to the classified documents that have been discovered in their position in their possession. But then we pivot over to former President Trump and how he fought off attempts to get him to return the classified documents in his possession. How often have you seen that kind of thing happen where not only is someone caught with classified documents, but then they fight about whether or not they should be relinquishing them? Well, I think that's a new one. <laughs> um, we're bringing, you know, the Trump administration broke new ground in a lot of different areas. And that's that's one of them. I mean, generally, and as the government has done with other people that leave either government employees or contractor employees, um, people that are involved in spying. I mean, the government will go in and seize those documents. And unfortunately, that's where it had to get um, with the, you know, with the Trump, the documents that were down in Florida. I don't think it had to get there. Um, but again, there were also whistleblowers and sources that were calling the government saying, we released information to you, but it wasn't everything that we have. We have other documents here. And others inside the Trump, you know, Trump camp were saying, no, no, we gave you everything. And so I think the government's hand was forced in that case. And it's it's nice. I think they need to do this similar audit. I know that there's some been press coverage that they've called all the existing or the living presidents and vice presidents to see if they have uh, classified information. They all said no. Like, I'd never walk out with that. But we know a few months ago, that's what Vice President Pence also said. And he did end up having classified information. So I do think we're going to end up seeing kind of an audit here. We're going to see some tiger teams that are, you know, sent around the country to look at through presidential libraries and records that are in people's homes or garages, wherever they may be in the presidential libraries and ensure that we don't have classified information out there. There needs to be a threat assessment. Who had access to those files? Who packed them? Who carried them? Who had access to them? And also what are the national security threats in there? And that's all part of the, the overclassification is a large percentage of our national secrets aren't really national secrets. This has gone back. The Moynihan Commission on Secrecy um, uh, looked at this, and I think their number was close to 75% of the things that they saw didn't have to be classified. The 9-11 Commission, same. It was 50 to 75%. 70% of the information that was classified really didn't need to be classified. And you had this perpetual problem years in and years out. So that's where I do think that systemically, Congress should be stepping in, not as a political battle, but to handle this as a systemic problem, both with documents leaving and also how do we improve the classification process and the declassification process to make it a much better place for government secrecy, government secrets to be actually stored, not embarrassing facts, not things that are there's still things that are tied to leaders that are long, you know, long deceased about what cigars they smoke that are being protected as national security secrets. Cost. You know, we need to get to a better place with the overclassification system, and we're not there. Congress needs to step in. The executive branch needs to step in, and we need to find a better solution. Um, or we're going to continue to have these problems with overclassification, high costs, the lack of sharing, both within the federal government, but also with federal entities or allies. I mean, all these are hindrances. That all came out of the 9-11 report, and it still exists now, what, 22 years later? So, Scott, you mentioned overclassification. You mentioned also, I think, in one article I saw you quoted in, you said that if you go back to any president's home dating back, you know, many years, you'd probably find some documents stored away somewhere. Uh, in the Moynihan uh, Commission report that you mentioned, there was a quote that unless secrecy is reduced, it cannot be protected. So 
you know, we've known about this problem for a long time. The government has known about this problem for a long time. Why has it not been solved? And, uh, you know, one easy answer is because Washington doesn't do a lot of these things really well. And there's, you know, partisanship, of course, and there's costs associated with that. But, you know, if this it, it seems to be if there's any bipartisan issue out there, this would seem to be it. Right. As we've seen, both two Republicans and one Democrat in the last few months have been caught you know, with these documents. So why do you think it's been taken so long? It's taken so long to solve this. Deference. Uh, there's a lot of deference to the executive branch. There's a lot of deference provided to the executive branch from Congress, even from the judiciary. Um, and so they haven't been forced to do it. And the default setting is protect, protect, protect. And until that changes, until we get a new culture inside the government that we need to share this information, it needs to get out to the public, there needs to be a public interest balancing test on the cost and what information is being released. Until we have a real culture inside of the executive branch, we're not going to get there. Now, President Obama back in, I think it was 2009, 2010, you know, he was the most recent that did an executive order on classification and declassification. I don't think anything was done after that. President Biden has said he wanted to step in. He's asked the National Security Council to look at some of these issues, but we're unsure how far they were they got. And you know, that was just when the, the you know, the Trump uh, allegations were were brewing last year. And so we'll see if there's more appetite from this on, you know, on the media side, on the public side, but also on Congress's side to step in and possibly legislate where they have to and just not rely on presidents to issue executive orders. And for the Department of Justice, the Department of Defense and the CIA to keep saying, well, if we don't protect, you know, the sky's falling. If we don't protect this information, all our national security secrets are going to get out there. Well, that's not true. And everybody knows that because we know that based on every review that's been done over the last 60, 70, 80 years, that everybody, every recommendation or every finding is that overclassification is happening and it's a real problem and we need to fix it. But nobody's ever really dug their teeth into it to do it. Scott, can you clear up for our listeners how these documents become unclassified? We've heard, you know, sort of two extremes. Trump said he could simply think about these documents and therefore they would be uh, you know, removed of their confidentiality. Is that true? It doesn't sound like it should be true, but what's the process for declassification uh, of these documents? Well, he can certainly think about declassifying things and that may trigger the process, but it's not the way it happens. I mean, it does go through a process. It goes through a declassification review. There are many people that are involved in many security officials that are involved um, in doing that review. There's also a few, there's a public interest declassification board, there's an interagency um, security classification appeals panel. I mean, there's many different aspects on how things can go through a formal process. And even as members of the media and the public, we can ask for information to be declassified. Um, I think uh, it was President Obama and his executive order got the time limits down to like after 10 years, certain documents can be declassified. Um, after 25 years, there can be certain documents that are declassified. And I know the Biden administration released some things a few weeks or a month ago related to the Kennedy assassination, where, which were finally declassified. So there's a lot of efforts to get these triggers to be, be prompted a lot more quickly. Automatic declassification after shorter time frames, not 10 or 25 years. Some more authority for the classification officials to be able to declassify things and in independence there in you know, doing some of this work. But we also have these panels that can do it as well. And so, again, I think all of this is ripe to try to figure out exactly what the per current process is 
and how best do we can reform it to make it really work. And currently it's broken. Scott, last question here on uh, Legal Faceoff. Really appreciate your time. This is a, a two-parter. Merrick Garland, the attorney general, has appointed now two special counsels to investigate uh, the Trump situation, Mar-a-Lago, and then Joe Biden. He hasn't uh, as yet appointed one for former Vice President Mike Pence, who just came out and said, I was flat out wrong. Maybe that has something to do with it. But if you were in charge, if you were attorney general, is knowing what we know now as of today, is the special counsel the right route to uh, handle this? Second part of my question is, if you were advising a former president or any government official on how to handle uh, potential liability, what would you say? In other words, go check your house would probably be the first instructions, but what should steps be, what, what would you advise someone possibly in possession of these documents to do as of right now? I think Merrick Garland got pushed into a corner. I mean, this started out as very political. Um, and, you know, what he did for Trump, I think he had to repeat. You know, a lot of people have said, well, he's going to have to do the same here. And we're going to have a third special counsel that's going to have to take over and dig into the Pence documents. Um, I think it, it will depend on the amount of documents that they're finding, the review and the audit that they're doing uh, when they do an inspection and then the cooperation that they're getting. Um, so it'll be it'll be interesting to see if we see a special counsel there. I think the special counsel only came in because it also ramped up to being criminal. Um, obviously, the Espionage Act has been ramped up through the years. We've had more leaks. Um, also part of when you classify everything that needs to be classified, even if it's not a genuine national security secret, if it's just an embarrassing fact and we're going to, you know, we're going to classify it. That's why we're having so many leaks now. And so. I mean, at the end of the day, I think it got ramped up to being criminal because then all of a sudden they were like, is this spying? Is this the Espionage Act? Was this intentional? How did these documents get there? Why weren't they turned over? So it was good for the goose, was good for the gander. And we'll see now if we're going to end up with a third. As far as your second, how to handle, I think there's been needs to be more time and attention spent, especially with high government level officials, that what are they collecting? How are they storing it? And just that we're not willy nilly and that things are being packed in boxes. I mean, I think that's one of the big things in the Trump cases. You had an example where these classified documents were thrown in with personal things, pictures and, you know, different gifts that he would received. I mean, you know, again, it sounds like uh, somebody leaving college and just throwing a bunch of things in bankers boxes or in a bunch of crates to move out for this, you know, for the semester of the year. I think we need more due diligence in what is being packed by whom and to ensure the classified documents aren't getting out. I don't know. Um, I don't know if that, it does not sound like that was done in these instances. And it was just like a rush to get out the door, throw things together. And then that also explains why these documents are spread out in so many different locations is they really weren't tracked and they weren't monitored on what was in them and where they were, who had access to them and what they were, you know, in the long run. So um, again, it's a broken system and hopefully Congress doesn't take the political approach here, but attacks this on, okay, how do we reform this system to make it work for both the national security establishment to protect genuine national security secrets and also get more, more things to, uh, as again, other governments, allies, and the public that can share a lot of information about the activities and operations of our government. Again, that's Scott Amy, General Counsel of Project on Government Oversight. Scott, thank you so much for the insight today. Very good. Thank you for having me. Welcome back to Legal Face Off. We are joined today by 
Buckley partner, Dan Alonzo. Dan is a partner in Buckley's New York office, focusing on white-collar defense of corporations and individuals, among other areas. Dan served in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of New York for nearly a decade. Uh, part of that was three years in the criminal division. Dan was also the Chief Assistant DA in the Manhattan, Manhattan District Attorney's Office. We're very privileged to have him. Dan, welcome to Legal Faceoff. Thanks for having me. So Dan, this case uh, involving Trump's alleged payment of hush money is now uh, in front of a grand jury. We just learned this week. Um, can you walk our listeners a little bit through some of the charges alleged against the ex-president in this in this legal action, among many legal actions going on with Trump? Sure. Well, first of all, nothing's been alleged yet, right? It, it seems to be just an investigation based on the reporting. What the what the Times reported, the New York Times reported this week, is that the DA has convened what's called a special grand jury, very different from the Georgia special grand jury. It usually it essentially means just an extended period of time. So the DA is not rushed. Grand juries usually sit for four weeks. So this gives them a little bit more time. Uh, so that also gives them a chance to compel witnesses who might not otherwise want to cooperate. And it's already been reported that the former head of the National Enquirer testified earlier this week. So they are in the throes clearly of a real investigation. And what they're investigating is essentially the conduct that Michael Cohen pled guilty to four years ago in federal court, and they've transposed it into a state crime. And the state crime they're investigating is falsification of business records based on the basically fake uh, uh, legal fee invoices that Michael Cohen sent for reimbursement. How important will those documents be as evidence in the uh, potential case against the ex-president? They'll be crucial on the one hand because they are the business records that were falsified. But I don't expect there to be a serious argument that those records were true. Right. I mean, I think everyone will probably agree that these were not legal fees, that this was reimbursement, although, of course, the DA will have to prove it. The rubber will hit the road with the question of whether you know, Trump or anyone other than Michael Cohen, because he's been convicted already, uh, actually had the intent to defraud, you know, to deceive someone uh, relating to these records. And that intent in New York to make it a felony has to include the intent to commit a different crime. So we're, you know, those of us who are sort of observing this are supposing that that other crime is probably tax fraud, because if they are legitimate legal fees, you would be deducting them from uh, from taxes. If they're not legitimate legal fees, as these were not, they could not be deducted. And therefore, you'd be committing tax fraud if you were going to deduct them. That's just a supposition, but it seems like the likeliest theory, the false records plus the intent to commit the other crime. What are some of the... Um difficulties in proving the tax fraud portion of this case, you think? Well, you'd have to you'd have to be able to show that that was in Trump's head, that he intended to deceive someone, maybe the tax authorities, not his own organization, obviously, um, but that he intended to deceive someone and that that included a potential tax fraud down the road. If I were his lawyer, I'd probably say Trump doesn't pay attention too closely to uh, tax matters. I don't. That was obviously somewhat successful in the case that the DA just uh, prosecuted just now, which included the Trump Corporation, but not Trump himself. So no doubt those arguments were made, and ultimately the DA probably didn't have enough evidence there. 
the the what's, what the DA has going for him is that they've become experts in the Trump organization and the way they did business. So a lot of the same people that we just saw in that trial in state court will no doubt pop up in this case as witnesses or as other players. Will Weisselberg, who is what uh, going to serve a five month sentence, is he will he be expected to testify in this case? It's unclear. Uh, he's currently serving that five month sentence, so they could bring him down from Rikers Island or wherever he is uh, to the grand jury. Uh, the the wild card is that he did testify. Uh, as reportedly in the federal case four years ago before a grand jury. And we don't know what he said. And the DA, when they were prosecuting Weisselberg, was very careful, as they're required to do, to stay away from those statements because they were he was granted immunity in federal court. So now the question is, now that the immunity doesn't really matter anymore, will the DA get those prior statements from the feds and use that to question Weisselberg in front of the grand jury? Uh, we just don't know. Are we going to hear from Michael Cohen, who's obviously a key player in all of this, as you mentioned, the only person actually convicted? Well, he has said, and there's no reason to doubt him, that he went in recently within the last week to be interviewed on this question. He's also been very clear that he's been completely cooperative with the Manhattan DA uh, freely. So my guess is, of course, we'll hear from Michael Cohen whether the DA puts him on the stand. If I were them, I'd try to find a way to avoid it. Uh, not that I don't think Michael Cohen's done a great service in some ways over the last few years, but I think his credibility has some issues and Trump and his lawyers will pounce on that. That'll be a big, big issue. They will certainly call him the star witness. And if you don't believe Michael Cohen, then you have to acquit Donald Trump. Don't know if that's true. Depends on the rest of the evidence. But uh, if Cohen testifies, they will fixate on him a thousand percent. Now, obviously, he's now a convicted felon, right? And it's an easy argument to make to a jury that he has every incentive to lie, especially given how public he's been in his discussions in both writing and podcasts and almost every chance he's had to get to sort of uh, air his grievances against his former employer. Yeah, to me, the convicted felon part is almost the least of it. I mean, I put on a couple of dozen convicted felons in my career, if not more. And and that's, you know, you sort of deal with that. Um, more important, I think, is that he has a huge axe to grind with Trump, right? His, his bias is very obvious. Um, and, uh, th- there, there's just a lot of shifting statements that he's made over the years about lots of things relating to the Trump organization, which are documented in that book, The Fixers. So I'd have some trouble, uh, putting him on the stand. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I'm saying he would be a tough one, a tough witness. In the grand scheme of things, and certainly maybe in the grand scheme of uh, all things Trump legal, this is a relatively low-level crime, although uh, that kind of cuts both ways, right? If this was a normal person, I think this would have been relatively open and shut. On the other hand, you could also argue that uh, the DA is sort of so heavily invested in this because of who it is. So what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think you were quoted as saying that even you know small cases like this need to be prosecuted. Um, on the other hand, I think it sends a message to uh, individuals that no one is above the law, even though, you know, it took a while for this case to get rolling. This is clearly not the case of the century. Let's start with that. But it is a case that is worthy of prosecution without question. If if a regular business executive in Manhattan had done the payoff, faked the legal fees uh, and and had the criminal, the mental culpability he'd be prosecuted. No question. So that, I think, answers the question. Why would we prosecute that hypothetical executive and not Donald Trump? 
More importantly, why did we prosecute Michael Cohen? Why is he the only one and not Donald Trump? So if they can prove the case against Donald Trump, I think that's the only consideration here. Dan, last question here on Legal Face Up. What's the likely outcome of this case? Uh, should a grand jury return uh, charges against the former president? Well, if the grand jury returns charges, then you no know, doubt Trump will want to go to trial. So it'll be a, a pretty explosive trial. Uh, I think I've said about a similar thing that it would be kind of nuclear war. Uh, and it would be tough, but but not impossible. I think a relatively strong case, depending what they have to connect Trump. And then if he gets convicted, he's not going to do any jail time. That's my prediction. He'll get some kind of sentence of probation and something else and maybe home confinement, but he won't do any jail time. Dan Alonzo from Buckley, thank you so much for joining us on Legal Face Off on WGN. Thanks a lot for having me, Rich. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Face Off. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Welcome back to the Legal Face-Off podcast. It's time to move to the legal grab bag. And let's get to our two guests. We start with Julian Saldierna, photographer, videographer, and producer at WGN Radio. Welcome to the Legal Face-Off podcast, Julian. Thanks for having me. And we welcome back Ashley Alvarez, Committee Director and Legislative Counsel at the Chicago City Council. Ashley, welcome back. Great to see you again. Great to see you all. Thank you for having me. Rich, let's start it off. And uh, we start with one of the more sobering topics, and it is the Tyree Nichols death that is making its waves uh, across the nation this week. I mean, the latest news is uh, breaking today is that two of the officers have been identified um, as being involved in a prior altercation, one of them said to a uh, to a suspect, "I'll blow your face off." In a prior um, incident, which of course Tina just raises the question of why these uh, why these guys were still on the street, why they were still uh, carrying badges and guns. Uh, you know, I think it speaks to the problem that we've all now talked about, heard about over the last week or so, which is you know uh, lack of training, um, hiring people that really shouldn't be police officers in the first place, lack of screening. And once they are hired, um, you know, improperly trained, there's no question that anyone looking at this video um, would conclude that they did not engage in proper police tactics. Again, not to cover that all because we've all heard about that um, a lot, but there's no question that these individuals were just not properly trained on a variety of de-escalation techniques, of uh, arresting techniques, of physical restraint. Um, That's obvious. The other breaking news is that... uh, uh, a sixth officer has been relieved of duty. Now it's important to, you know, speak accurately about the terms, uh, Tina and everyone, because um, I think what impressed a lot of us 
and the general public in general is how the Memphis Police Department and prosecutors learn from prior mistakes. For example, here in Chicago, it took, what, 18 months for Laquan McDonald's video to be released, and that was only uh, after a court order, right? Um, in the wake of that, we've seen some improvements, and, and then fast forward to, to this unfortunate incident. Uh, the video was released very quickly, and these individuals were fired very quickly, and they were charged with murder very quickly. Um, I think that's the proper method of handling this. Uh, but we learned yesterday that another officer, this one was a white officer, he was relieved of duty. So the question is, do you know why is the only white officer involved? And he's involved for sure, at least. On the first video, you could hear him say, um, you know, I hope they're going to stomp him or something like that. And he's certainly involved in at least the first video. Why is this individual not charged with murder? He's certainly an accessory to murder, even if he wasn't involved in the second video, which shows the second beating. So, you know, that raises some troubling questions. Um, on the flip side, you do want to move, uh, um, you know, with deliberation. And these investigations take time. It's not easy to wade through these videos as someone who, you know, does that uh, as part of my practice, it's not easy to figure out what's going on in any video. So you want to balance the uh, investigation, but it seems as if they were, if they were able to charge the other so quickly, uh, this individual is not being treated the same way. You've really teed this up very well, Rich. And I think we could spend days talking through all of these issues. I agree with you that it really doesn't seem to make a lot of sense based on what we know that the white officer has only been relieved of his duties, but, you know, hasn't been charged. Um, I also think that, you know, it's, you know, the lack of training, the way you framed it, I think, you know, that is probably at best what we're dealing with here. I think we've got some individuals who may, maybe should never have been police officers in the first instance. Um, and it's just a horrible, horrific incident that I think as the days and weeks continue to roll by, we're just going to get more information. But it, it, it's really um, shocking and horrific that given everything that's happened in the last three years, that these incidents are still happening. Um, at least the video came out right away, as you mentioned, so that there's an acceleration there, it seems, of this process of trying to figure out what happened. Ashley, um, yeah, well stated, Tina. Ashley, you know, uh, you want to try to resolve some of these issues, especially in, you know, cities like Memphis, cities like Chicago, by uh, what, promoting diversity. Well, in this case, that really didn't help things. We have a, you know, uh, black individual that was killed on the streets of an American city by, by black officers. You want to, um, you know, get guns off the streets and get gangs off the streets by putting together task forces like the Scorpion one. Well, that doesn't seem to help, as indicated in this situation. Uh, you want to have more diverse leadership in police departments. Well, the Memphis um, police chief who put this Scorpion unit together and was very boastful of it and proud of it, female African-American. So it seems as though this really devolves into a situation of maybe these are just, you know, individual, uh, you know, really bad individual people. But yet we see this a lot. So. It's really unfortunate there aren't uh, the solutions we're hoping for. You know, perhaps um, another example is, you know, body cams. Well, everyone thinks that body cams are some kind of panacea and they're going to solve this problem. They all had body cams, right? They, they, were, they were so audacious about their behavior that they didn't even think to turn that off. That shows you how perhaps worthless body cams are if these individuals feel comfortable enough to literally beat a man to death while videotaping at the same time. Yeah, no, I, I think, I mean... It's egregious. I think 
we have to kind of look at what this was created to do. And I think policing, when you get to the core of it, was created to protect property and slavery. And so I think that is what it is. I don't think diversity can fix those things. We're seeing everything that everybody has asked for. We're seeing body-worn cameras. We're seeing the fact that they had a duty to, to you know, help. No one's helping. We have medics that are not helping. Uh, 24 minutes, it was 14 minutes, I believe, that the medics did not do anything, but 24 minutes about that he was not given any assistance. He's beaten for 30 minutes, even though they say it's three. I, we see everything go wrong here. Um, taser was used as a use of force. Like, Every single thing that we are clinging to that's supposed to be working is not um, here. It's not, you know, it's not existent. It is a terrible, terrible case. I do not think it's something that can be fixed by diversity. I think that at its core, what it has been created to establish, um, we need to rethink that because it is really premised and egregious behavior that, that clearly has escalated and demonstrated what, what it could become and the loss of a life that should never have happened. Yeah, 71, Julian, 71 commands in 13 minutes. You know, I don't know that anyone on this planet can understand how to follow those instructions. But, you know, uh, what really other the other thing that struck me in watching the video and I've watched I've watched the entire set of videos several times is, you know, how at the end these individuals, it's it's not bad enough what they did. And that's one of the most egregious things we've ever seen. But, you know, their attempts to cover up their crime by literally like stating into the video Oh, oh, he was reaching for my gun or, oh, he was high on something. All this nonsense that they were making up uh, on the spot. Again, like it reinforces every bad conception you have about police officers. And it's really unfortunate because, you know, I think the great majority of police officers really are trying to do a good job. But, man, it's just uh, it really makes you think uh, uh, after watching this video. Yeah, it's I when I saw the video, I was I, it messed me up a little bit. I watched it and I had heard that he was uh, just a few yards away from his mother's house trying to run over there. I I was messed up for about a day and a half after I saw it. I, I was just thinking about the whole situation and what was the point of all of it? What were they trying to achieve? Rich, let's move on to a topic that we have covered earlier here on the Legal Faceoff podcast. And the attorney representing the teacher shot by a six-year-old student announcing her intent to file a lawsuit against Newport News Public Schools recently. Yeah, the lawyer, like you mentioned, for the uh, first grade teacher that was shot by a six-year-old who brought a gun to school announced a few days ago that she's going to, that they're filing a lawsuit against the school board, basically saying, Tina, that this was preventable, right? That they had a couple of chances that day because there was a tip that a kid brought a gun into school. Then they even searched this kid's backpack. Apparently, he took the gun out and put it in his pocket. Um there's another chance to uh, investigate, and they failed to do so, according to these allegations, resulting in this teacher being shot. Uh, thankfully, she's going to survive. But um, I think there's, listen, there's at least a colorable case, as we as we as we use that term in the law, of a lawsuit here. Um, uh, not putting aside criminal charges, right? I think we talked about on this show before whether you can charge a six-year-old with uh, a crime, uh, attempted murder in this case. Um, possibly some kind of negligence. The answer is yes. In Virginia, as in Illinois, there is no uh, minimum charging age. Uh, of course, it would seem as though they would probably uh, go, you know, a different route just because it's hard to prove to a jury that a six-year-old would form the requisite intent to commit a crime. So they probably would go through some mental, you know, mental treatment. That being said, this is a civil suit that's being uh, contemplated. And again, there seems to be some um 
case here, Tina, because uh, it just comes down to basic negligence. And if the uh, 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 staff at the school did not investigate more thoroughly, then there is some liability. On the other hand, Tina, if I was defending the school board, I would say, well, this is a six-year-old, right? We haven't seen too many six-year-old shootings. Uh, it would seem um, at least reasonable to do a cursory investigation and not assume that a six-year-old will be bringing a pistol in their backpack to school. Very tough situation, Rich. I mean, unfortunately, especially with things like this, there's always going to be a first, right? And as you stated, while there may be certain states that allow you to charge a six-year-old, ultimately, when we live in a world where we've seen some pretty horrific things, especially with regard to school shootings, I think it's the duty on this. There is a duty on the school, especially when we're dealing with children of this age who don't necessarily know the difference between right and wrong. And we've seen even when it's older kids that should know better that we live in a world where kids bring guns to school and start shooting people. And there has to be somebody who's an adult who will take the precautions and when put on notice, I mean, I think it's arguable that they were put on notice, not just once, but several times that there could be a bad incident brewing here. It is incumbent upon those at the school to investigate it, to try to de-escalate what could be a horrible situation brewing. Because as you said, I don't really know if you can hold a six-year-old responsible for understanding the gravity of what they're doing. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. Um, you raise really two excellent points, Tina, which is number one, that it's not, you know, a school stands in the shoes of the parent. That's a legal theory called in loco parentis. That's a Latin. And literally, they have a heightened standard because you are dealing with children, right? So it's different, perhaps, for them a store owner or a restaurant. So that's number one. Um, number two, you know, in this day and age, I think you're correct, right, Julian? I mean, you can't assume these days that a six-year-old wouldn't be bringing something into school, especially when they were warned, right? And, and the sequence was at 11.30, um, uh, someone went to a school administrator to tell them that a six-year-old had threatened to beat up another child. Now, that's far removed from a gun. But then at 12.30, another teacher, now a second teacher, went to an administrator at the school to say that they had searched the six-year-old's backpack, found nothing, but there was a rumor that they brought a gun. And then, this is the most damaging part, I think, the uh, uh, teacher tells the administrator that they believe the six-year-old put the gun in their pocket. The administrator's response was, well, he has little pockets, like whatever that means. But certainly at that point, there's some notice on the school, and you would think there's some heightened duty to do something. Right. And and I think coming out of the situation going forward, I think a lot more people are going to take something like that more seriously. It's just it's heartbreaking that it has to come to that, that something like that has to happen for us to start taking oh, a six year old might have a gun in his pocket more seriously. Yeah. And Ashley, in addition to all that, you know, uh, there's certainly some liability on the children's parent. I think there's some indication that the, that the gun was, you know, six feet up. And it also had a lock on it. So in some respects, if I'm defending the mother from either a criminal or a civil charge, I'm asserting that, listen, we I did everything that the standard of care mandates, right? It's it's the kid's not six feet tall. The kid still got the gun, though. So obviously she didn't do enough. Yeah, no, I, I think um, 
I really wonder how how it came to. I mean, he had enough note. The kid had enough notice, right, of where this gun was, of of how to get a hold of it, and how to unlock it, how to bring it to school. I think everybody was really just put on notice in in this in this case. And so, as parents, I I mean, I can't imagine because I'm not a parent, but I can't imagine you know just meeting the legal requisite was not enough. And I, I think that you have to really go above and beyond. Um, that could have been her child that that um, you know hurt himself. Never mind that he's bringing it to school. So I think from that standpoint, I think there's a lot of things that went went wrong just from the household. Tina Priscilla Presley is contesting Lisa Marie Presley's will based on the signature. Yeah, Joe. So it's hard to believe that it's been less than a month since Lisa Marie Presley died tragically at 54 of a heart attack. Um, Unfortunately, the controversy is actually brewing on a number of fronts. Um, As you mentioned, um, her mom, Priscilla Presley, is contesting the 2016 amendment to Lisa Marie Presley's will. Um, That amendment purportedly ousted both Priscilla as well as Lisa Marie's former business manager, Barry Siegel, who had been previously appointed uh, co-trustees. If this 2016 amendment is is honored, it would leave Lisa Marie's eldest daughter, Riley Keough, as the sole trustee. Lisa Marie's son, Benjamin, unfortunately died by suicide in 2020. He would have been the co-trustee. And Lisa Marie also has teenage twins who are heirs. So Priscilla in a court filing claims she and Siegel, at least right now, should still be considered co-trustees. And this 2016 amendment shouldn't be honored because her signature does not look legit. And actually, Lisa Marie Presley's name is spelled wrong, which Priscilla argues is another indication that it's not legitimate. She said it's also not been notarized, was never delivered to her um, when Lisa Marie was still alive. And under the terms of the original 2010 trust, those are things that should have happened. If Priscilla is able to knock out this amendment, she and her daughter, um, Riley Keough, Lisa Marie's daughter, would be co-trustees. Um, An interesting twist to all of this is that Lisa Marie didn't really want Barry Siegel to be involved um, with any of her financial affairs. She sued him several years ago, saying that he left her in financial ruin. Apparently, Lisa Marie blew through $100 million and was only worth $14,000 not all that long ago. So that actually swings in the other direction, indicating that maybe this amendment that Priscilla is trying to knock out may be legitimate. In other interesting news, um, there are some strange things going on with Lisa Marie's insurance policies. She was in pretty steep debt when she died, about $4 million in debt. She had about $35 million in insurance policies Um, that will inure to her heir's benefit as a result of her passing. What's interesting is that she was so in debt that she was actually trying to get the cash value of her $25 million policy to pay off some of this debt, but something happened with the paperwork and then she passed away. So now her estate is worth $35 million. So Rich, you know, we see these things happen all the time with famous celebrities and then their 
relatives arguing and contesting wills and, and so forth. This one happened pretty quickly. I mean, the the funeral was like less than two weeks ago. Yeah, I mean, uh, here's why I have a suspicious mind, Joe, about this case. I can't believe you didn't reference that. You know how hard it is to come up with puns for every lead? Well, I wasn't just going to steal it from you. I mean, I, <laughs> you clearly put a lot of thought and effort into it, so I didn't want to just take it from you. But, um, no, I mean, you, you hit them all. Like Those four allegations, if true, seem to cast a lot of doubt on the veracity of this change, right? I mean, it's pretty – like, anyone knows that you have to have a uh, change in your will notarized and witnessed for this exact reason, right? Um, you know, the spelling error, that's it, that is interesting, but not unprecedented in the world of Elvis, right? Do you all know the famous misspelling? controversy that leads to some conclusion joe that elvis is still alive and among us no his, on his tombstone his middle name is spelled aaron with two a's his given name is spelled aaron with one a Ooh. so perhaps that's some indication that's not the real elvis down there in uh in that's Memphis. that's that's quite a leap but uh okay i'll take <laughs> yeah, it well, i only report the news joe um so, yeah, I think it's suspicious for sure. I mean, I think the fact that she was so desperate for money uh, is obviously uh, interesting, but we'll see. I mean, you know, it will bring in, they'll bring in obviously a forensic signature expert and compare the two. But who doesn't know, Ashley, that you're supposed to have stuff notarized? And even these days, like it's common to videotape any change, especially with one of the most famous and lucrative estates in the world, right? How do you just change it and no one knows about it? Yeah, no, I, I really don't know. Um, it's why it's important to have these things in place. But I also think that at the time of the amendment, I don't know if anyone knew that there'd be a motivation to really make sure that you were following everything closely by the book because 35 million wasn't in existence. I think the debt was more in existence. Um, so that kind of leads me to think that, that maybe the amendment might be legit because the motivation is really not there um, at the time. Yeah, Julian, what do you think? I think there needs to be a little less conversation, a little more action. There we go. <laughs> Let's go. No, but I, I I don't see why they can't all just be in it together. They're all related. They should all have a say in it. Personally, that's yeah. <laughs> Well, let's move from one musical prodigy to another, from Elvis to Rick Astley. And if you told me a year ago, I'd be saying this sentence. I wouldn't know what half these words mean. But Rick Astley is claiming that Young Gravy stole his voice to get money in his new song, Betty Get Money. Tina. Joe, I think that's probably the best praise Rick Astley in his career is ever going to get being compared to Elvis Presley, but be that as it may. Um, He's an avid listener to Legal Face Off, too, so I wanted okay. to make sure I, I, I gave that love to him. Yeah, I love Rick, too, and I did the sound check, too, before the story. So last week, 80s pop sensation, for those of you listeners who don't know who Rick Astley is, he sued rapper Young Gravy in California court, claiming that Young Gravy and his producers flagrantly copied and stole Astley's voice from the song Never Gonna Give You Up, which we just played, that they stole it without his permission in the latest single, Betty Get Money. So the lawsuit alleges a few things, including that Astley's right of publicity was violated, as well as claiming false endorsement and false designation of origin 
as well as unfair competition. And this lawsuit goes for the jugular in terms of damages because of what Astley alleges was bad intent by Young Gravy. There is longstanding legal precedent, which a number of us IP lawyers call the Bette Midler case. It's a 1988 California case involving people who imitate famous people's singing voices. Um, and Astley's lawyer, who just so happens to be the same lawyer who represented Marvin Gaye's family in the Blurred Lines lawsuit, thinks that this case is probably not going to be all that difficult to prove. The Bette Midler case forbids people from imitating a singer's voice as it is, um, you know, as it's singing in an original recording. It forbids use of that sound in a new recording absent specific, specific permission to do so. So Rick Astley argues that his case is a lot like the Bette Midler case and that while Young Gravy got a license to the music itself, that he was not able to secure Rick Astley's permission to use his vocal track. And so because of that, Young Gravy's producer decided to hire somebody to impersonate him instead. The grounds of the complaint is that the impersonation is so good that people actually think it's Rick Astley singing when it isn't. The complaint goes on to talk about how careful Rick Astley is with his image and reputation, and he's very discerning about giving permission to people to use things like his recorded music. And he says that this theft actually adversely impacts his efforts to collaborate with others on things such as a reboot of this song. So the fact that Young Gravy, the allegations are that the producers actually were trying to get a sample license for years and weren't able to do so. And so they pivoted to this approach instead, which from a punitive damages standpoint can be pretty damning, assuming that Rick Astley um, is able to prove his case. So I probably heard the original version of this song thousands of times. I was a big Rick Astley uh, fan back in the day, Rich, and I listened to it like five times. I can't tell the difference between this singer and the original song. No, it sounds exactly the same. I mean, that again, like if I'm on a jury and I hear the first opener, you know, opening few seconds, like done, right? Where how big a check are we are we gonna are we gonna write? Um, the bet the Bet Midler case again, like you mentioned, like that's presidential. It's well established and it just makes sense. The good news, as we've covered many times on this show over almost what nine years, is that like a lot of these lawsuits, particularly when it comes to intellectual property, they they can be very specific and very complicated sounding. At the end of the day, they make sense. You're trying to profit off someone else. Very simple. It's a tale as old as time, right? If you wanted to be Rick Astley, you would be Rick Astley. If you wanted to use Rick Astley's like voice and songs, then go ask him. If he says no, then go move on to someone else, right? Like there's plenty. Like go ask Wang Chong or some other legend from the '80s, but not Rick Astley because he didn't give you permission. It's pretty simple. Um, I mean, it's a catchy song for sure, and it's ironic that it's called Betty and he's you know violating the bet. Midler uh, rule, but um, yeah, Ashley, I don't know. This one seems easy. We cover a lot of these, you know, cases, and they're hard. I mean, the Blurred Lines case was, you know, uh, a, a groundbreaking one, but that was a little tough. This one couldn't be easier, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I think he, he's impersonating him uh, physically and vocally. Um, so I, I think you got it. I think you're you're hitting 
you're hitting everything that you need to hit in the bet case. And um, I don't, I don't think it's going to be an easy win. Julian, uh, I know you love both Rick Astley and Young Gravy. Uh, any case on the part of the rapper here that you could come up with? In favor of him? Yes. Yeah, oh, gosh, no. I I mean, if if the word was, no, you can't have my voice, and he should have listened. I, personally, I would have loved to hear Young Gravy do a, uh, an Elvis song, or even maybe if he did Take On Me, that would have been something for uh, his go. voice. I don't know. Can I play devil's advocate and just say that this only exposes Rick Astley even uh. more? And... You know, it it, it kind of reinvigorates the song and, and puts a new twist on it. What did you say, Rich, that he wanted, he and his team wanted to do a reboot of the song that basically was a reboot of the song, right? But he oh, didn't right. like I mean, it. <laughs> right. You're right. That is, a, that is a factor that is relevant is that we're talking on, you know, to the millions and millions of people that listen to Legal Face Up, we're talking and playing you know, Rick Astley. So that does have some value. You're right. That's a good point. I don't know. I feel like he should have just collaborated with him or, or something along those lines, but uh, maybe that's what the whole dispute comes from. Uh, speaking about old time songs and going back in time, I don't know how many of you would just love to go back to high school. Uh, one New Jersey woman tried to by lying about her age by 15 years. Yeah. If I could turn back time, um, another uh, iconic Song from uh from back. We don't want to get sued by Cher, right? Reg, exactly. so be careful. <laughs> yeah, this is a 29 year old, as you mentioned. She enrolled uh Tina in a New Jersey high school. Uh, she posed as a freshman. She got, you know, she got everyone fooled for a few weeks until uh she was caught by the authorities and arrested in New Brunswick. She also had a uh, fake birth certificate. Um. You know, it kind of calls into question a lot. I mean, we talked earlier about like the school shooting, right? A six-year-old getting a gun at the school as evidence of some shoddy administration, some shoddy security. You know, it sounds kind of funny, of course. It is a little funny. It reminds me, of course, of the classic, what, 90s movie or early 2000s, Never Been Kissed, the uh, Drew Barrymore uh, story um, or movie. But, uh, you know, not a great look for the school security to be allowing almost 30-year-olds to pose as, uh, as high school students. Tina. Yeah, and there's nothing like good old-fashioned fraud, right? I mean, I just have to wonder why she would do this. I mean, high school, at least for me, is something I would not want to relive. It was, <laughs> it was enough the first time around. You know, I went to Highland Park High School, which, you know, John Hughes, bless him, he did so many movies that depicted various aspects of what high school on the North shore was like in the eighties. Um, I, I don't know why she'd want to do this. And this is good old fashioned fraud. So I'd say throw the book at her because she's stupid enough to want to relive high school. And she's sitting here forging all these documents. I mean, it's, it's just kind of crazy, but you know, getting back to the story we, we covered earlier about the school shooting. I mean, this is just another example of, how, you know, people aren't paying attention and aren't being diligent about some basic stuff like who is going to your school and what are they capable of doing? Yeah, I mean, it's actually, you mentioned John, the late great John Hughes. It's like the reverse Ferris Bueller. Ferris Bueller was an actual high schooler who, who posed as an adult. He couldn't wait to get out of high school, but this woman uh, broke back in. Ashley, um, did you ever want to go back to your high school uh, once you got out of there? and? Uh, Pull a, uh, pull a uh, 
Young, no, I, I'm, I'm with Tina on this one. Um, I'm with Tina on a lot of things, but I'm definitely with Tina on this one. I definitely don't want to go back. I think um, not. I've had some reunions. I've missed all the reunions. I, you know, it was a good, good time for what it was, and I'm glad to be out. <laughs> Uh, there's also some, I just have to note like how creepy some of these facts were with this case, because there was a kid that was talking about how she was like messaging students to hang out and they didn't go, but like her motive, I'm very curious about. I definitely think we need to throw the book at her, but it, it, there's some underlying things that I think need to be um, looked into as well, because she was reaching out to a lot of kids to get them to hang out. And uh, yeah, just, it's a very all around, very strange, but, but uncomfortable case. Joe, maybe, maybe the New Brunswick high tater tots are just that good. You know, I mean, maybe that you never know. I guess so, but that's gonna that's gonna be enough to bring you back to high school fifteen years later. I, I for one, really enjoyed my high school career. Um, I don't mean to brag, but you're talking to the two-time most improved volleyball player of Marist High School, which is wow. still still a school record. Um, How is it possible, though, that you have two most improved after the first most improved? <laughs> aren't you just improved? I had were you to start. I had a very low floor. Okay, so <laughs> I, I had a lot of improvement. I'm I'm great at adjusting. That's that's what they thought in in the on the volleyball team. So again, don't mean to brag or anything. Um, speaking of freshmen. It's been a while since we've covered a this food product doesn't really contain what it says it does. This one surprised me. Fireball whiskey, Rich, apparently not containing actually any whiskey. I was going to bring a prop, but I, I don't have the I have some, some of the regular size one. The regular size bottles of Fireball contain whiskey, lots of whiskey, lots of alcohol. The little mini versions don't contain whiskey. According to the allegations of this complaint, they're actually made up of like malt liquor and wine. And they're labeled differently. So, you know, on the one one sense, you know, you could argue as the defense lawyer in this case that they're that they're um, advertised properly. But the allegation goes that, uh, you know, because you're able to sue these mini bottles in a lot more stores, Tina, than you would the regular bottles because they don't contain the same level of alcohol or they don't contain whiskey. Um, the allegation is that you're trying to they're trying to deceive the public into thinking that they're buying good old fireball whiskey, you know. Listen, as the defense lawyer in this case, if I have a case, I would employ a very um, arcane, uh, very complicated legal tactic. And it would be, um, it's fireball. It's like liquid poison anyway. Look what you're putting into your body. Like, what do you expect? Either way, it's like basically one step up from, you know, Drano. So either way, you know, um, I don't think there's a lot of uh, a legs to the case, but Listen, if there's a product out there, we've covered hundred, you know, dozens of them on the show. There's going to be a lawsuit unless you literally say exactly what's going on with that. Yeah. So if if you and in case you don't want to really insult your client by saying you know it's poison, you could also use as defense read the label. Yeah. You know that always will serve you well too. If you know when you're purchasing products that you actually read the label. Now, obviously, these cases are very fact specific, and even if it's on the label, sometimes you can't read it. But there's also other things that need to be looked at, especially when you're talking about food and beverage products. Which is there's a boatload of things that folks, from a regulatory perspective, need to have on the label. So it's a balancing of interests, especially when you're dealing with a smaller size. But, you know, people in this world would go pretty far if they actually read the label of what they purchase before they purchase it. 
For sure. And hey, Julian, you know um, who's buying the little mini uh, fireballs in the tub at the Speedway at 3 a.m.? I mean, these are people looking to get drunk really cheaply and really quickly. Uh, I don't know that they're the most uh, uh, attractive litigants when, when it comes to lawsuits like this. So I don't know. I don't think there's much to it, but maybe you disagree. No, I agree. I, it says they're here that they um, they said using natural whiskey, which would be a misunderstanding for many, even myself, a, um, a connoisseur of fireball back in my day. Um, I never thought otherwise. It, it tastes good and I feel fine. That's what, what I'm thinking, too. I want to know what type of classy people are walking into a saloon and are like, I'll, I'll do uh, three fingers of whiskey. Oh, no, please fireball. And and actually the little bottles, because I prefer those instead. I mean, no one's doing that. It's, Give me your finest fireball. Yeah. It's like, hey, I found these at the bottom of my freezer. You guys want to take them? That's that's what those are for. Uh, we finish off Legal Face Off with a rough survey for our main audience. Rich, Tina, care to, pro, uh, to prove the haters wrong and comment how great it is being a lawyer? Well, Joe, I love what I do, as do I. I think Rich loves it, too. He and I have pretty different existences. But I don't think the notion that a lot of lawyers are unhappy is all that novel. Um, between the stress and the long hours, and the very nature of the job, which is to criticize others and to always see the glasses half empty is not necessarily a recipe for happiness. Um, I'd say that one of the improvements in the profession over the last several years has been actually somewhat ironically by virtue of the global pandemic, where people have realized that they can do their jobs, not just by being tethered to their desks in their offices, but also they can do their job tethered to their desks at home. Um, all of that being said, I don't think lawyers are the only super unhappy people. At least I don't think, you know, all of them are, but a lot of them may be. So there was a recent rough survey done about who the happiest people are by profession. Um, and surprisingly, the winners are lumberjacks, foresters, and farmers. Honestly, for me, I think I'd be actually very unhappy in those professions and, and much happier as a lawyer. Um, each of these have really interesting aspects. Um, I think that bottom line, the common denominators include they don't work at a desk. They don't deal with conflict day in and day out. They're not trained to spot everything that's going to go wrong, and they are one with nature and outdoors a lot. I don't know, Rich. I don't think I'd ever pivot to being a lumberjack, but I don't know. Maybe we, we should try it out now that we're 30 years into our careers. You know, as a Canadian myself, like half of the people I grew up with are currently working lumberjacks. You know that. So uh, it's not that far-fetched, but... Yeah, I mean, listen, lumberjacking isn't all it's cracked up to be. I mean, you're you're responsible for you know deforestation and killing these trees and that sounds like a very up. that sounds like a very lawyer comment about lumberjacks. Yeah, exactly, Joe. Um yeah, I don't know. Uh lumberjacks, they have the cool beards and they got a you know, great hats, great toques as we call them up north, and you know, get to wear a lot of plaid. I, I get to wear some plaid though myself, so I don't know. I think lawyers are right. Generally, they they are fairly miserable. Um, it's an occupational hazard. But, you know, listen, you could have a podcast and make your life a little happier. Uh, Ashley, what's your take on it? Are lawyers 
doomed to be miserable and unhappy? Um, I I think that we are, uh, as Tina said, kind of created to have all of the fixings to be unhappy folks. Um, but there is an emphasis, I think, since the pandemic to really uh, not only value your time and where you're doing your work, but also mental health has been emphasized in a way that I've never seen. So yes, I do think lawyers are unhappy. I think that I catch myself in the trap quite often uh, just by the nature of the job. It's it's a stress, but I also think we enjoy a little bit of it, I will argue. We enjoy the parts that are toxic. Um, so also the people are attracted to it. So I don't know. I, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword, maybe. With the help of some fireball. Julian, let's end off the segment and the show with an Around the Horn segment and tell us, we'll put you on the spot, one job that you currently do not hold that if you were the ruler of the world, like maybe a lumberjack, if you would pick that job, but what would be your chosen occupation if not doing what you are currently doing? Julian, go for it. That's a, that's a very good question. I never actually thought about that. I genuinely love what I'm what I do. Um, I guess if I had to well, I would say musician. There was a point where I was gonna be a guitarist and then I messed up my hand and now that dream is gone. So that's it. I'd be a guitarist. All right, Joe, what do you got? I mean you you you've got the dream job in many, you know, as the one of the voices of the Chicago Blackhawks. It's a dream job. So you're doing it. But what would be your other dream job? I thought you were going to lead with host of the Legal Faceoff podcast. I mean, that um, is that goes without saying. Uh, really quick, Julian, who hurt your hand? Do you need? Do we need to sue somebody for you? Or there you go now, Joe. Oh no, that was taken care of years ago. This <laughs> okay, was, I was a teenager then. Okay, okay, just making sure. Um, yeah, no, Rich, uh, very, very happy to be doing what I'm doing right now. I'm having a whole bunch of fun. Really can't. Uh, Think of any other place I'd want to be right now. But if I were to pivot industries, even if you can call it that, I'd love to be like the voice of a cartoon character. I think that'd be very fun. Um, the other thing is, and wow. I'm not potty, potty, the podcast squirrel. Give us a little sample. of you. <laughs> No, no, not at all. And I'm not confident in it. That's why I'm not a, a cartoon wow. character, probably. Um, I don't know. I, I'm not good at video games. I don't play video games, but I think a video game tester would be a pretty cool job and uh, very laid back. So yeah, a lot of nerdy stuff. Uh, pretty much showing why I was the most improved volleyball wow. player. If anyone had money on cartoon voice, then you win the uh, the the contest. Ashley, you're up. Um, I think you know the one thing that I do miss from high school. I was uh, in, on our competitive dance team, so I probably would love to be dancing professionally or a constitutional law professor. Um, maybe both at the same time. <laughs> right. So dancing con law professor, Tina. I would be a record producer. I love that. Wow. I actually seriously thought about getting into sound engineering when I was heading into college and I love music and I'm not I think I would have a lot more fun not as a musician, but as somebody that works with musicians to produce records. I thought you were going to say that you really contemplate contemplating being a producer after you heard the Young Gravy song like that <laughs> six minutes ago. Like, huh? Wow, you better than that, and I'll, rep I'll represent him. Um, uh, my my answer was going to be rock star too, but you know, I'll just go with a cliche of like you know point guard for the for the Celtics. Uh, I, I was almost there. And then I realized that I was, um, I don't know, white, Jewish, uh, short, and not very skilled at basketball. So those were the 
things that prevented me from my dream job. But, um, you know, for now, we'll just stick with what we have. Yvonne, you want to chime in? Trusty producer Yvonne? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, dream job. I would probably want to be careful now. Cause I'm, cause all of your employers I'm, uh, we're listening. I know a lot of my employers are listening right now. Um, like, a somewhere in the movie industry, like movie director, screenwriter kind of thing. So Joe, when I direct a animated movie, you're first on my <laughs> list. No. I got you. Awesome. Love it. Yeah. I actually, Rich, I thought that's the route you were going to go like horror film director or uh, producer or something along those lines. Kind of do it already, Joe, but, but you know, <laughs> thanks for ignoring my, my IMDB page entirely, Joe. Let's get back to the, the squirrel. I want to hear some of that squirrel voice. I, I, I don't know why I'm automatically a squirrel, um, <laughs> but it's, no, I, I, it's not like I've practiced this or anything whatsoever. Exactly. I just uh, give us your best Rocky impression. For the next podcast show, we want you to work on it and start the you show with it. Like a favorite person that has inspired you? You know, I really wasn't expecting all these follow-up questions. Uh, <laughs> I, I was just kind of hoping that everyone would be like, oh, cool. Great idea. Um, no, I don't. I don't know. I liked cartoons as a kid and I do some like voiceover work on the side but it's all commercial stuff and i've i've never really landed too many gigs from it and i always thought out oh, like create a persona and uh just kind of like you're, you're an actor but only you know half of it i guess through the microphone and i don't know tiktok keeps pushing me all these uh all these cartoon voices and i'm just kind of like lost in it every time i look at them all so uh no i i haven't practiced it i haven't day dreamt about it too much but uh never too late I'm working yeah. on that. All right. Well, okay. You guys just uh, planted the seed. So thank you very much. Uh, that's going to do it for the Legal Face Off podcast. A big thanks to Ashley. A big thanks to Julian, all of our earlier guests as well. And uh, don't forget to like, subscribe, and share the Legal Face Off podcast. Please give us five stars. That always helps as well. For our producers, Yvonne Barbosa and Ben Anderson, and for our hosts, Tina Martini and Rich Lenkoff. I'm Joe Brand. Thanks for listening to another edition of the Legal Face-Off podcast. We'll talk to you in two weeks on WGN Radio. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face-Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget the...